Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. From The Recount, I'm Rena Ninen, and you're listening to The Recount Daily Pod. Today's Wednesday, September 15th. Well, the U.S. military carried out a drone strike inside the capital, Kabul, and they said that it was against an ISIS target. So the next day, I went there to the site, and we got to the courtyard of this house, and there was the family that this house belonged to who were just completely heartbroken. They had lost 10 members of their family, including seven children. That was Matthew Aikens, New York Times journalist and investigative reporter, on the bombshell investigation that came out on September 11th. The investigation implicated the U.S. military in a horrific, deadly attack on possible civilians in Afghanistan in the lead-up to the U.S. withdrawal. We'll get into that a little later on. But first, your morning headlines. We begin with COVID. In the southern states, ICUs are now filling up to dangerous levels as the Delta variant continues to spread among the unvaccinated. One in four hospitals now report that 95% of ICU beds are full full. To put that into perspective, back in June, when COVID cases were at the lowest, less than one in 10 hospitals were at 95% capacity. In Alabama, all ICU beds are full. According to data from the Department of Health and Human Services, dozens of patients are in need of beds that simply are not available. The story of Ray Demonia, 73-year-old Alabama, illustrates the magnitude of the problem. Demonia, who has a heart condition, needed a bed, but couldn't find one. He was actually turned away from 43 hospitals in three states. He died of a cardiac event on September 1st, three days before his 74th birthday. His family is sharing his story to encourage people to get vaccinated to free resources for hospitals. We head to Georgia now, where the Justice Department announced a sweeping civil rights probe into state prisons following dozens of deaths. The investigation was launched after allegations of deplorable living conditions coupled with rampant violence involving over 40 homicides since the beginning of 2020. The investigation will focus on whether or not conditions violate inmates' constitutional right against cruel and unusual punishment. 
At the annual Intelligence and National Security Summit, Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, said that al-Qaeda could rebuild in Afghanistan within one to two years. He went on to add that the terrorist group could once again threaten the U.S., noting that some members of the group have already returned to Afghanistan. How much of a threat al-Qaeda and ISIS-K pose to U.S. interests in Afghanistan and how the U.S. should address these concerns were also discussed on Capitol Hill yesterday during a hearing in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was grilled by committee member Senator Rand Paul about a recent drone strike in Afghanistan that killed 10 members of the same family, including seven children. The guy the Biden administration droned, was he an aid worker or an ISIS-K operative? Uh, the administration is, of course, reviewing that, uh, that strike, uh, and I'm sure that a you know, full assessment will be, will be forthcoming. So you don't know if it was an aid worker or an ISIS-K operative? Uh, I can't speak to that, and I can't speak to that in this setting in any event. The truth about that drone strike is being hotly contested in Washington, D.C., And it's the subject of today's Daily Deep Dive. To say that things were chaotic as the U.S. was preparing to end its 20-year presence on the ground in Afghanistan would be an understatement. There was chaos at the airport. A suicide bombing killed dozens, including 13 U.S. troops. People were afraid. Then on August 29th, as the deadline to be out of the country approached, there was a drone strike that the Pentagon claims was ISIS-K. Is that true, though? Matthew Akins, journalist for The New York Times and author of the upcoming book, The Naked, Don't Fear the Water, is on the ground in Kabul and joins us now to dig into it. Matthew, welcome. Thank you for having me. You bet. I want to get right to this situation on the ground. Tell us exactly what happened on August 29th. Well, the U.S. military carried out a drone strike inside the capital, Kabul, and they said that it was against an ISIS target. They said they had killed an ISIS facilitator who would pose an imminent threat to the airport. So the next day, I went there to the site with a photographer for the Times, Jim Hollybrook, and we got to the courtyard of this house where the strike had taken place. They'd hit a car, and there was the family that this house belonged to who were just completely heartbroken. They had lost 10 members of their family, including seven children. So right away, it was apparent that there had been civilian casualties in this airstrike. But, you know, over the following weeks, as we pieced together the story, our investigation on the ground, you know, with the great team in New York that uh, was putting together visual forensics, became apparent that this story didn't really add up. You know, the guy who had been targeted, Zemrai Ahmadi, and he was killed in the strike, he was a longtime aid worker with a California-based company, Nutrition Education International, that was doing humanitarian aid. And what the U.S. military had said, you know, were a suspicious series of moves, just turned out to be, according to his co-workers, a regular day at work. You and the team managed to piece this together and your bombshell investigation. It was published on September 11th. Tell me more what was in it and, and what did your investigation really reveal? Well, what we did was piece together his final day from the moment he got up in the morning and drove this car to work, picked up some co-workers on the way. He got to the office, and one of the key pieces of the investigation was the security camera footage that we got from the office that showed him pulling up, you know, going about his day, and loading water canisters. You actually see him on the camera filling up these canisters 
and putting them in the trunk of his car. Now, he was doing this to bring home the water to his family because there was no water delivery in his neighborhood after the fall of the government. He had a big family. This may have been what the military saw him putting in the trunk of the car. We don't know. But it's definitely water. We have that on camera. So he goes home, and that's when the U.S. military decides to strike inside the courtyard of this house in a very crowded residential neighborhood. We then took photographs and videos of the scene. The U.S. military said that there had been significant secondary explosions, like a second more powerful blast afterward that proved that there was explosives in the car or made it very probable. But there was no evidence of that at the scene. You know, it was a small courtyard. There was no damaged walls. It was just this Hellfire missile, the drone fire, that had killed him. And as I said, you know, seven children and just pieces of their bodies were everywhere on the scene when I first went there. For people who are listening, your team, when they piece together that video using the security footage of the car, the driver from the courtyard, where it was parked along the route it drove that day, give us a sense of what you see and what's crystal clear in that video. Well, what you see in the video that we put together is a kind of timeline of events and we have the locations that we established by multiple interviews with his coworkers, with his family about where he went, when, you know, what houses he stopped at on his way to work. And then at work, we had the actual security camera footage. I went to the office and got it and there's multiple cameras. So you can see him pulling up, getting out of the car with his coworkers walking inside, smiling, waving at the cleaner, you know, typical day at the office, filling up these water cans. Uh, We've also gotten video of him, you know, he's an engineer working in the soybean factories that this company was setting up, giving out food to kids in the same car that was destroyed. Photos of him and his family, of his um, beautiful children who were killed in the strike. So all of that is there. And together, I think it presents a case that this was the wrong target. Have you spoken to the nonprofit that had employed Zamarai Ahmadid? Yeah, we've been in constant contact with them. They helped us get access for the camera footage. You know, they are heartbroken and furious that their colleague who they'd worked with since 2006, they have all this testimony about how he was dedicated to helping people who were hungry. I mean, this was a charity that fought malnutrition. So they are heartbroken and they are pressing for justice, pressing for compensation. You know, most people don't have an American organization behind them, but he did, and and that's why uh, we were able to get some of the material that we got. Is there any way, based on who you've spoken to on the ground there in Afghanistan, any way to sort of misinterpret or understand how the U.S. military might have thought there was some sort of ISIS-K involvement? Well, there was definitely an active threat to the airport. You know, you have to remember that just three days before there had been this horrendous suicide attack that killed almost 200 people, 13 of them U.S. troops. And the very next day after the drone strike, there was a rocket attack from the same neighborhood using a similar car. So the U.S. military was definitely aware of threats. They were probably getting a lot of intelligence that indicates something was going to happen. But, you know, they really have to be careful with these kind of strikes because they are devastating. They took this strike inside a crowded residential neighborhood, and the end result is that you have 10 people who apparently have no connection to ISIS who are dead. What's been the Pentagon's response to all of this, and particularly your investigation? Initially, they were very confident. You know, they were saying that we heard that some people were killed. We don't know who they are. They didn't know Zemrai's identity when they took the strike, uh, apparently. They said that there was, you know, secondary explosions. So they thought there was bombs in the car. 
now they are saying they're continuing to investigate. So they're doing their official investigation and we kind of need to wait for the results of that to see what they come up with. In a press conference at the Pentagon on Monday, September 13th, General Mark Milley defended the strike. I want to play that bite for you. We know from a variety of other means that at least one of those people that were killed was a ISIS facilitator. Um, so were there others killed? Yes, there are others killed. Who they are, we don't know. Uh, we'll try to sort through all that. Uh, but we believe that the procedures at this point, I don't want to influence the outcome of an investigation. Um, but at this point, we think that the procedures were correctly followed and it's a righteous strike. A righteous strike. What do you say to that? Well, I think that a strike that killed seven children can't be called righteous by anyone's standards. And the fact of the matter is, is that the military gives its version of events and they tend to stick to it unless they're challenged by alternate evidence. In this case, we were able to develop very powerful contradicting evidence and testimony on the ground in Kabul. But we had to think how many other strikes there are like this, where it's just the official version of events that doesn't get challenged. We've got to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Matthew Akins, author of The Naked, Don't Fear the Water, and journalist for The New York Times on The Recount Daily Pod. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome back to The Recount Daily Pod, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. I'm here with Matthew Akins, journalist for The New York Times, and we're talking about the deadly U.S. drone strike in the chaotic days before the U.S. pullout from Afghanistan. You know, you look at Obama. I, I was a White House correspondent covering the Obama administration, and there was a great deal of criticism that he launched a lot of military campaigns using drone technology and drone strikes. Some people might say, okay, it's unfortunate seven kids, but things like this happen when you're going after bad guys. Well, when you rely on technology where you're just looking at things from the sky and trying to match them to signals intelligence, then you have these kind of mistakes. But again, there's no way to check them. There's no way to corroborate it. There's a kind of feedback loop with this kind of technology where the military just assumes that what it's seeing is correct. And again, these sites are often very difficult, dangerous to access. You know, it wasn't necessarily easy to go right now in Taliban held Kabul and do these interviews. But comparatively speaking, it was easier to do than going to a lot of these remote, dangerous areas where drone strikes take place. So I think that this incident is not an isolated incident. This has happened countless times. It's only the tip of the iceberg, but we only know about this one. And, and we know about other examples too. But this one, which turned out to be the last official drone strike of the war, um, was clearly a mistake. I know it's not easy 
to gauge public opinion these days in Afghanistan. But can you tell at all how this is playing out? Has the Taliban government said anything on this? The Taliban government has had a lot of things on its plate right now. So this is not something that they've said much about. I think they condemned it. They condemned drone strikes, you know, and they have been saying this for years, that these strikes caused civilian casualties. Obviously, they were quite painful to the Taliban, too. I mean, these strikes are effective militarily. There's a reason why the U.S. has relied so heavily on them. But as we're moving toward a situation where there's no more boots on the ground, there's much less accurate intelligence, we have to be careful about relying on what they're going to call over-the-horizon strikes, right? Are we just going to keep bombing Afghanistan, keep bombing other countries with drones to go after, you know, people we think are terrorists? If we do, then there's a likelihood that we're going to have more of these incidents, more dead children. The Costs of War Project at Brown University's Watson Institute for International Public Affairs estimates that 46,000 Afghan civilians were killed since the U.S. launched its war in Afghanistan. That's 15 times more than the number of Americans who died on 9-11. What's your takeaway from that number? Well, I think it's a number of people who have gone mostly unmourned and it's people whose names and faces we don't know. And that's why I think it's important to look into the eyes, look into the faces of this family. And we posted some of those pictures. You can go online and see them and know about these victims. So, Matthew, how can the U.S. have any level of confidence in intelligence gathering without having U.S. troops on the ground? And many of the people that they trusted, there were so many people who have been evacuated out of the country. Yeah, I think that their capacity has taken a huge hit. You know, one possible area of cooperation with the Taliban would be on counterterrorism issues. I think that now that the Taliban are a government, they're going to have less incentive to tolerate or even work with groups like Al-Qaeda. They've been fighting against ISIS. So it's a big if, but if the U.S. can incentivize the Taliban and try to reform and cooperate on counterterrorism, then that could perhaps replace some of that lost capability. You mentioned that the Taliban has a very tight hold on the country. How great of a threat is ISIS-K to the Taliban at this point? Any way of gauging that? I think they're a threat. I don't think they, they're a major threat yet. I mean, the, probably the biggest danger that ISIS-K poses to the Taliban is that they could you know, attract disaffected members. So perhaps some of the more radicalized extremist Taliban who aren't happy or who are just cut out of the sort of power sharing arrangement, there's a chance that they could go to a group like ISIS. So it's definitely something we're watching. Um, but the extremism and the ideology that ISIS represents is not one that's common in Afghan society. It doesn't have a place. So I'm hopeful that it will not become a broad-based movement or anything like that in Afghanistan. We've got to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Matthew Akins, author of The Naked, Don't Fear the Water, and journalist for The New York Times on The Recount Daily Pod. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. Come here. Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. 
It's The Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela Yee is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> Ooh. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Oh. Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Welcome back to The Recount Daily Pod, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. I'm here with Matthew Akins, journalist for The New York Times, and we're talking about the deadly U.S. drone strike in the chaotic days before the U.S. pullout from Afghanistan. The U.N. is reporting a humanitarian crisis on the ground in Afghanistan right now. What are you seeing on the ground? Absolutely. Afghanistan is facing a drought A lot of Afghans are facing literal starvation. The whole government is about to collapse because there's no money that's been frozen by sanctions. So regardless of what we think of the Taliban and regardless of the Taliban's own responsibility for bringing about this crisis, I think it would be not only a tragedy, but a serious mistake in terms of our own interests to allow millions of Afghans to be pushed into starvation because that crisis will spill over and destabilize the whole region. Um, and, and morally, it's just the wrong thing to do, I think, is to stand by. And we, we really do need to support the UN, which is taking steps now to go back to Afghanistan. We need to support them to deliver that life-saving aid. So you spent so much time in Afghanistan, right, over a decade. What are you watching in the coming weeks? I think we're watching to see, first of all, if there can be an effective response and cooperation between the Taliban and the international community for the financial crisis, for the humanitarian crisis. You know, people don't have enough to eat. Salaries have been frozen. Um, we're worried about a currency crash. The banks, you know, if you go to a bank now, you see long lines of people lined up because they can only take out about $200 for a fixed period. So th- that's the immediate problem. And then there's also the, whether the Taliban, which have announced an acting cabinet that was very narrow, very much about their own core conservative membership, um, whether they're going to follow through on their promises to expand that, to bring in other parts of Afghan society to govern, you know, and what they are going to bring about what they call an Islamic system. It's not going to be a democracy. We can hope at least for the participation of more elements of Afghan society. And we can also hope that there will be peace. Afghanistan's suffered from 40 years of war. So now that the U.S. has fully pulled out, what would you say to the Biden White House about the future of Afghanistan? I would say that you know, we need to be pragmatic while still being steadfast in our support for for rights for Afghan women, you know, who are facing a particularly difficult situation. But at the same time, we shouldn't act out of revenge. If you look at the situations in Iran or Cuba, where decades of sanctions have only compounded both the repressiveness of regimes and the suffering of the people, clearly that's not the way forward for Afghanistan. So I'm hopeful that points of cooperation, like humanitarian aid, like basic governance, like trying to push for more inclusive government, could offer us a way forward out of that. Matthew Akins, journalist for The New York Times, joining us from Kabul. Matt, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And now to the look ahead. Here's what else we're watching today. Four gymnasts will testify on Capitol Hill this morning on the FBI's handling of the sex abuse case involving former USA Gymnastics doctor Larry Nasser. 
Olympic medalist Simone Biles, Ali Raisman, Michaela Maroney, and collegiate gymnast Maggie Nichols will speak in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. The committee is looking to determine if the Indianapolis field office responded appropriately to the first accusation of sexual abuse against Nasser. The hearing follows a recent report from the Justice Department detailing the numerous and fundamental errors of the FBI's handling of the Nasser case. Elon Musk's SpaceX will be entering the space tourism business today with the launch of the Falcon 9 rocket. The crew of four civilians will be in our orbit for three days before returning back to Earth. They will travel around the Earth at 22 times the speed of sound, making the first commercial crewed mission to reach a low Earth orbit. The launch will be streamed on YouTube at 8 p.m. Eastern. Time Magazine will reveal its 100 most influential and powerful people. Last year's list included actor Michael B. Jordan, YouTuber Jojo Siwa, and creator of hit musical Town, Anais Mitchell. The reader poll for this year had Britney Spears at the top, followed by healthcare workers and vaccine developers. Have a great day, everyone. Hope to see you back tomorrow morning. This is the Recount Daily Pod, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Our thanks to Matthew Akins for being on the show. And if you like this episode, hope you'll subscribe to The Recount Daily Pod. And do leave us a rating on the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Rena Ninen. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council.